As kids, we learn that bullying is wrong, and we're taught to treat others the way we would want to be treated. But one way or another, we eventually face the harsh reality that bullying doesn't go away when we outgrow the playground. Adults can be bullies too, especially when placed in a position of power. And we can't always expect the bullies to be held accountable for their toxic and sometimes abusive behavior. Bullying is especially prominent in academic environments. However, powerful institutions and government funding tend to protect the bullies from ever facing consequences for their actions. Too often, institutions will prioritize high-quality research at the expense of trainees and their well-being. Trainees working under abusive supervisors are beginning to speak out against the harmful treatment they receive in the lab, but shame guilt and stigma still discourage many students from ever coming forward with their stories. In today's episode, we'll be bringing the conversation about bullying in academia out of the shadows. We will be uncovering the reasons why bullies thrive in academia. We will examine the overwhelming impact of bullying on trainees and discuss the steps we can take in the scientific community to address the problem on a larger scale. Hi, my name is Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a 360 Perspective episode of Science Rehashed. If you're enjoying the show and you want to help us keep making the content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle. And don't forget to visit us on Twitter to rehash the episode with all of us. Join the conversation with us at Science Rehashed using the hashtag SR episode. See you all there. Today at Science Rehashed 360, we are talking about bullying in academia. Since this is a big conversation, we have Lauren and Nicole with us to help break everything down. Lauren is one of our writers and producer here at Science Rehashed, and Nicole is one of our brand ambassadors from Newsland, and they are both PhD students as well. Hi, Shen. Hi, Manny. I'm really happy that I get to be here today to talk about this really important topic um, because I think it's just really crucial at this point that it's finally brought out to the light. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole. I completely agree. This is something that happens so often, but it's still rarely ever talked about in the lab. Yes, absolutely. And before we get into everything, I think we should talk about what exactly we mean by bullying when it comes to academia. When we think of a bully, we probably are thinking about some kid in the playground who ridicules the other kids, calling them names, maybe using some hurtful languages to put them down. But in reality, a broad range of behaviors can also fit the definition of a bully. And nearly every bully takes advantage of a difference in power to harass their targets. In academia, the power dynamic you are talking about is already built in the relationship between trainees and their mentors, and that makes bullying even more likely. 
It might be surprising at first, but some scientists and professors regularly engage in bullying behaviors. Sometimes it is subtle, but sometimes it's very blatant. That's right. And the power difference is always glaringly obvious to trainees who are constantly climbing a ladder to progress to the next stage in their career. Undergraduates, graduate students, and postdocs all understand that advancing to the next step depends not only on their own performance, but also on their relationships with their superiors. As more and more trainees are speaking out and sharing their experiences, it's becoming clear that abusive supervisors in academia aren't just rare isolated cases. Even with all the stories people hear about academic bullying, there is unfortunately not much action being taken at any point in the process. So we interviewed Dr. Sherry Moss, a professor of organizational behavior at Wake Forest University, to hear her perspective on bullying in academia from an organizational standpoint. Her work over the years has focused on abusive supervision in business and bullying in the workplace. But in 2018, she wrote an article for Nature about abusive supervision as it exists in the academic research environment. I was just sitting in my office um, behaving myself one day and I got an email from an editor at Nature saying, hey, we know you study abusive supervision. Would you be willing to write an article about abusive supervision in academic science? And if I hadn't have had two or three doctoral students that were PhD, MBA students come to me um, and talk to me about experiences that they had had um, with what they thought of as abusive supervisors in the lab, I would not have agreed to do it. But I felt like I had enough anecdotal evidence and I knew enough about how um, students and postdocs and so forth work in academic science and how science proceeds and your experience in the lab is over an extended period of time. It's not very easy to move around to another advisor, another PI. Um, so I felt like I understood the power dynamics of that situation enough to be able to apply what I knew from other types of organizations, mainly in the business world, to academic science. And it clearly hit a nerve um, because as soon as I wrote that article, the everything started happening. I started receiving emails from people that were victims of academic bullying. Um, and they were horrible, horrible stories. Um, that, and I, I just felt like I had to do something, but I really didn't know what to do. It's clear to Sherry that bullying is running a bit rampant in academia, but since trainees are so hesitant to take action in their institutions, most of what we understood about the issue came from personal anecdotes. Recently, Sherry teamed up with Dr. Morteza Mahmoudi, assistant professor at Michigan State's Precision Health Program, and performed an empirical analysis of trainees' experiences with their supervisors. With data from almost 2,000 participants, they could finally define and document the severity of bullying in academia. So the, the, literally the definition of, of abusive supervision is an, a subordinate's perception of the extent to which supervisors engage in a sustained display of hostile verbal and nonverbal behaviors, excluding physical contact. And Ben Tepper, 
is the researcher who generated this definition, and it comes very largely from the literature on domestic abuse, and and is clear to exclude physical uh, abuse. And so the behaviors that come from that field and that have been shown to be occurring in the business or organizational field are things like my supervisor ridicules me, tells me my thoughts and feelings are stupid, gives me the silent treatment, puts me down in front of others, invades my privacy, reminds me of my past mistakes and failures, doesn't give me credit for jobs that require a lot of effort, blames me to save himself or herself embarrassment, breaks promises, expresses anger at me when angry about another reason, makes negative comments about me to others, is rude to me, does not allow me to interact with my coworkers, tells me I'm incompetent, lies to me. And that definition does not even cover everything that falls under the umbrella of abusive supervision. Here's Moteza going into detail about the more nuanced situations that can come up in specific fields. It contains a large spectrum of actions. And when you come from different fields and different like kind of experiences, you can basically list additional things. For example, if you are in the field of kind of biotechnology, then the thing would be like, because the idea in the field of like biotechnology, the, the kind of um, holy grail is like to make something, invent something in the lab and then take it to like clinical trials or all the way into clinics and make it commercial. So many basically postdocs and lab members basically develop something during the course of their experiences. And then they get promised to like, if they share their ideas and their findings, then the PI with subsequent like experiences can help them to get it to like clinic or make it commercial. And then it would be like, a, uh, uh, it would be beneficial for both parties. But when you basically declare everything, then the situation would change because the PI knows the rest of the, wo- the road. And then the only thing he or she needs to do is to like get rid of you. And then that's the point that some sort of behaviors would show up. And um, there are also other things about the um, authorship positions. Like if you talk with people with like PhD experiences or postdoc experiences, many of those have like uh, bad stories that they basically worked on the project for a couple of years. And then when the paper ended up with like being published in a good journal, then they have no control even for the first author position that they have been like um, promised to get. Or like according to the university rule, there shouldn't be any guest authorship or stuff like that. But many of the PIs for the sake of like using other people's reputation, they just put them as a guest authorship. And then the like the the person who basically did the job can't even make any complaint. Laura and Nicole, so I'm wondering if you two have ever thought about this. Have you seen any type of bullying or heard of this type of behavior happening in the lab? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually unfortunately way too common and it's not talked about enough these days. Yeah, for sure. I always hear people talking about this just in passing, but it never gets to a higher level where it's talked about on a larger scale. It's always just people telling their friends and word spreading by word of mouth, but nothing ever really, no action is ever really taken as part of that. And a lot of the time it actually falls on the burden of other graduate students in the department or in the university to rely on for help. And I mean, they're going through their own things. That's not necessarily on them as well. Yeah. And when you're relying on other grad students, we don't always have even the resources to know how we can help. It's always we can offer emotional support, but that's absolutely. Yeah. What kind of behavior have you guys seen mostly or heard about? So I think sometimes when new grad students come into the lab, uh, expectations aren't necessarily set out for incoming graduate students. And so I feel like sometimes they can easily be taken advantage of in terms of effort and time spent in the lab, when obviously everyone is working hard for their academic success. But I feel like expectations and clearly laying out those expectations might be really beneficial for labs. Mm, That's a really good point. Do you think that like this conversation should happen, you know, at the beginning of the graduate students, um, you know, PhD talking about, you know, what are what are your expectations of me, you know, in terms of both outcomes of papers and grants, but also kind of on a daily day to day basis. Um, I think that would be probably sounds like it'll be useful in terms of what you're saying. Yeah, I think uh, university expectations, but also lab and mentor and trainee expectations are really helpful. Everyone's experience is different in terms of their labs and who they're working with. And um, everyone's got different expectations for their Monday through Friday, right? Right. Especially within the lab, I definitely agree with that because it's really easy to get carried away with, with long work hours, like Nicole said. And a lot of times it's glamorized to work long hours and people will even start to brag about working long hours. And if the PI and the lab as a whole is not, is kind of encouraging that type of work or praising the long hours, then that can also be a big problem. So I think that individually setting expectations for yourself with your own PI and within the lab is really important. I've definitely noticed that one thing that we could do to help change this is to kind of rephrase the terminology we use to talk about our long hours in the lab and to not glamorize it like Lauren said. Well, I did want to ask Nicole, have you seen any other challenges as an international student in the United States? Yeah, I think that's a great point. A lot of academics are international students and Um, An international student, especially when they first arrive, is physically relocating, um, has to find a new support network, um, is uh, acclimatizing to a new culture and a new country, but also just figuring out new work cultural demands, what it's like to work in different cities, for example. Um, I was new to Boston and I heard that was very specific uh, work culture compared to other cities in the US, for example. I think sometimes a lot of challenges international students face aren't necessarily recognized by everyone in terms of the huge um, emotional and physical and um, financial costs that it does take to relocate to to do your academics in another country. And so I think because of those disparities, international students are also commonly potentially more taken advantage of.
So what makes bullying such a big problem, specifically in academia? Even though abusive supervision has been studied in the workplace in general, it seems disproportionately prevalent at universities and in medicine. Sherry and Morteza found that 84% of participants in their study experienced bullying themselves, and 59% have been a witness to others being bullied. Even more interestingly, bullying is more likely to happen at higher-ranking institutions. I would really like to know if there is truly something about the environment that makes academia especially suited for bullies to be successful. We asked the organizational psychologist Bob Sutton, who wrote the book The No Asshole Rule, why he thinks academia is a perfect environment for abusive supervisors. First of all, yes, academia does have its problems that in that we have um, people who are tenured like me. I'm a tenured professor. And um, and so so if you sort of think about it, we have probably have too much job security. We probably have too much power. And you put people in situations where they feel entitled. Um, what will happen is that uh, the, the classic thing when people feel powerful and when is, is that um, essentially our true selves come out. So there's less impulse control. Essentially, there's less breaks on the impulse. So the good side of it is that is that when you put people in power, if they're truly good people, it's probably more likely to come out. But there's even if you randomly assign people to conditions when people are powerful, uh, they got to be careful because of the amount of privilege they have. And I love the definition of privilege is that you don't notice the inconveniences that other people have to go through. You're, you're sort of excused from the inconveniences. So that, so that makes you have, have less empathy. And also you can get, as you say, you can get away with shit. So again, we're hearing that bullying thrives in academia because the power that PIs hold over their trainees. But it's not just the power that creates a harmful environment. But there's four or five characteristics. If you wanted to create a situation that um, brings out the worst in people, there's certain th- One is when there's big power differences. And I've already talked about power. The other one is when people are under a lot of time pressure. And there's all sorts of studies. The more hurried people are, the more you know, get that sort of tunnel vision when you're rushing along. Uh, the less likely that they're to care about people. And, and the, there was this famous study... Uh, done at Princeton, I believe, decades ago, the Good Samaritan, where what they did is they had these seminary students and they were given a lecture about the Good Samaritan so that stopping and helping folks. But then they created a situation where they had to rush from one building to the, the other. So they're seminary students. They've heard about the Good Samaritan. And there was some guy who was passed out in the alley. They had to step over. And when people in the hurt, were in a hurry, they'd step over him. And, and you think about it, it was like this, you know, kind of clever. It's just great. It's a good Samaritan study. It's famous. So, so, yeah. but, so, so being in a hurry, sleep deprivation. Well, your physician, that's one of the most reliable well, way yes. to turn somebody grouchy is, is to, is to have them be sleep, de- sleep deprived. That absolutely. As I understand it, that's a residency is you're sleep deprived for all those years and paid badly too. So, um, 
um, so 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 there's that, and, and and then being around people who are so, so and there's all sorts of evidence that um, th- that it's real that nasty behavior is more contagious. In fact, uh, a, a famous academic article called "Bad is Stronger Than Good." One of the hallmarks of almost all bad behavior, including grumpiness, cheating too, is is that uh, bad behaviors tend to be more contagious than good behaviors. And and also the other thing about bad behaviors is is that. That is that uh, when when people engage in bad behaviors, they're they're not only more contagious, uh, they pack a bigger wallop. They're harder to get rid of than good. It's, it's it's harder to get rid of bad behaviors than to instill good behaviors. So bad is stronger than good. And so, and then one thing which isn't a hallmark of medicine so much is is that when you communicate with people without eye contact, that's that's a problem. Interesting that you mentioned a lot about healthcare because, in a way, for the profession, the initial kind of screening for medical students is empathy and how you've demonstrated that in initial screening. How interesting you're saying that you know as you go on your training, you actually lose. Well, I'd say there's a risk. I I, I think there I think I think there are. So it's just like the rest of academia. There are places where it's better and places where it's worse. And and we talked about this that 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 the the way the attendings behave is really important. So so, yeah, so there's absolutely. a story in our book, which I think is worth saying here. So this is my attending asshole of the week story. So, and, and, and Schwang, I think we talked about this. Uh, so, uh, so about two or three years after I published in No Asshole World, I got a very detailed note from, from a guy who was actually a dean at, at this point of a major uh, medical school. And he said, and he did not name the school, perhaps it was Harvard, who knows? He said that, he said that um, when he was um, a, a resident, he and his fellow residents would get together every Friday and 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 they there was a logbook they kept and it was it, it was um, called the attending asshole of the week and everybody would tell their story about about the sort of nasty uh, of, you know experiences they had with with attendings and they would not, they would pick the worst one of that week the attending asshole of the week and, and and he said it was something that generations and generations of residents took but the reason in addition the fact is sort of a cute story the thing that he really emphasized was um, and to me this is how the cycle of abuse stops was we vowed those of us who would um, meet for a drink every Friday that we wouldn't behave like that. And he said, and I do believe, you know, it's like 25 years later that 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 did help stop the abuse. With all of these factors creating an environment primed for abusive behavior, it can be really difficult, if not impossible, for targets of bullying to escape the situation. And we will be digging into that more after the break. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, this is your chance to let us know. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, and we might feature you in our next episode. We have one review from one of our listeners today, Limerick Boston, who says, from the guests to the expansive range of scientific topics, it has all you want to learn about some really cool stuff going on in our world right now all whilst either on a long walk or just doing some chores at home. Great work and best of luck in your future development. Thank you so much for the review. We look forward to hearing more feedback from the listeners. So don't forget to write a review in Apple Podcast. So the problem, like Sherry mentioned, is that the huge power differences that 
basically the PI of the lab member has. Specifically, when they are like international students, they are like on visa and stuff like that. And um, so basically, those are the things that like from the signals that both PI and also lab members gets from the reported incidences, which like in many cases, nothing specifically happens to the uh, people with bad behavior and all the blames and expenses and, you know, difficulties go to the target, then it would be like, a, and I would say an um, inhibitor uh, factor for other targets to basically consider a way out. And it would be a promotion factor for the people with bad behavior that nothing happens to them. So you, they can basically continue their things. And the one thing I would add is that the knowledge on the academic polling is not high. And the reason is that most of the people's understanding on bullying goes to school bullying, which is kind of well-defined. But for academic bullying, the like discussion, everyone knows it exists, but no one talks about that due to obvious reason, all the way from reputation, retaliation, and stuff like that. And therefore, there's no good light on the issue. So many people... Um, don't feel accountable to basically consider those things in details. Though at like long run, it would be it would be harmful for for the society and also for the university themselves. But there are a couple of examples that people with like bad behavior force their lab members to like manipulate data in the papers or in clinical trials with basically. The stories came to the surface and universities got huge like kind of punishment from uh, funding agencies and also like their reputation based on the like mal, mal use of the data. I, I even have a story where one PhD or postdoc student um, presented the data accurately and their advisor changed the data and, and didn't force them, but took it and changed it and submitted it to a journal and had it published with not accurate data or falsified data. So I guess what I'm wondering is at this point, why students and trainees don't just leave the situation if they're experiencing abuse? Moreover, what can students and their peers do to avoid a situation that might leave them feeling powerless and stuck? Dr. Steve Anderson is an immunologist by training and served as the associate director at Northwestern University for 20 years. In his tenure as associate director, he witnessed countless examples of students enduring bullying in their labs. Bullying in, in the sense of abuse does not have a purpose of building up the student in perhaps as, as little a way as making them tougher, making them able to stand on their own two feet. It, it is more, the, the, the goal is perceived at least, and sometimes accurately, uh, to really crush the student and perhaps force the student out of the lab without doing it directly. So I think some advisors are incapable <laughs> of sort of direct um, 
non-abusive confrontation of students. And so they, re, they resort to this sort of almost passive-aggressive behavior where they try to force the student to choose to, to leave the lab. During our interview, Steve suggested that students who have experienced similar abusive behavior can band together and confront the PI. I really love the idea of uniting the students together and go and confront the PI. But this is very difficult. Just, just I want to be frankly speaking, very difficult. A graduate student that depends on the PI for graduation, depends on the PI for your next step as a postdoc or even moving outside of the lab or a faculty position. You need a, the best letter of recommendation from the PI. Worst case scenario, changing the lab. Also changing the lab uh, cause you loss of a lot of uh, hard work that you have been doing. And I have seen this in one of my, my, my classmates in graduate school that she, mm-hmm. she changed her lab after two years uh, because there were there were a lot of problems that uh, uh, unresolved between the supervisor and the student graduate student. Mm-hmm. But she left the lab after two years of hard work, working like ten hours a day. Everything moved to new lab with a new research, new thesis project. So I think this is very difficult to put all this uh, loss on on a graduate students where the institution can confront the PI if they can identify this is the real case mm-hmm. and the PI is either abusive or bullying the students. Uh, it doesn't justify, and you will say it, it doesn't justify if he does it to the whole group or one person. It's it's the same actions. Uh, so mm-hmm. what 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 I realized from what what you 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 explained, it looks like a very gray area, and there is not really established protocols from the institutions when students report about bullying or abusive behaviors from the supervisor, how the institution can confront or talk to the PIs or the supervisor and resolve the the situations all. It looks like resolving the situation from the student perspective. In, In my case, the program itself, the graduate program, is largely powerless. Uh, to discipline faculty directly. So that role resides in departments and in schools and ultimately in universities. But a graduate program is a a sort of nebulous creature that serves certain functions but has very little power they more are a shepherd of students from one end to the other. Um, so finding the right um, unit to deal with these problems is difficult. Um, I think there are a couple of ad hoc <laughs> uh, results. That includes that, as I said, Students complaining about faculty um, filters out to new students. 
And often that results in students not choosing a particular lab. Um, that's, and again, that can be misdirected, I think, in, in some cases. So it's not, um, certainly not what should be done. The, the articles call for action by universities to develop mechanisms for disciplining uh, faculty who are determined to be engaging in these uh, abusive behaviors. But you're right, at present, the resolution comes through the target. And th that is certainly not ideal and often not, uh, not productive in, in the long run. The one thing I would say about changing labs, um, many students in our program ended up doing that. And I, I am reluctant to use the word of lost time because yes, you are delaying your graduation, but that time is not lost. You were learning, you were growing, you were productive, hopefully. So you enter the next phase of your training as a very different person than you were when you walked in the door of the university. And you should be much more efficient uh, and, and much more determined to make the most of the time that, that you have left. I think I completely agree with that. Just with uh, both personal experience, I switched out after one year of my first <laughs> lab to a second lab and um, have many um, peers who have done the same either after first year or second year. And it's a really tough call because yeah. um, especially around year one, you're thinking, oh, maybe I'm new. Uh, I'm not you know, used to the environment. Maybe I just need to give it some time. And often enough, I think one of the advice that a lot of um, students who have gone through the process of switching labs have told me is that if you get the feeling it's not the right fit for whatever reason, pretty much within the first six months, and it's a really kind of mm -hmm. a strong feeling that comes from within, then you should actually switch earlier rather than later because most likely it, it's not going to get better, but yeah. it's actually going to get worse. And right. that was one advice that was given to me. And I, I think that was absolutely the right advice. And I think a lot of students who do switch out after a year or two, they end up, like you said, being more productive. So they either graduate actually on time Right. or right. only a year delayed, but um, with a right. much, you know, more positive experience, much more, you know, professional development, um, you know, experiences and opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so they typically yeah. don't regret the decision um, and the time, um, you know, whether it, their graduation delayed or not, um, they, they typically, that is not a major complaint. We asked our guests for a suggestion on how to leave a toxic lab environment. And the overwhelming advice we have heard was to never enter it in the first place. The question I tend to ask, um, and, is, and essentially, and this worked pretty well with Cleveland, who's the superstars around here? Is it people who get ahead by, by being selfish, by stopping on others on the way to the top? And a lot of organizations, especially in academia, you know, in academia, everybody knows, you know, I hate to sort of say this, everybody knows that, uh, that you end up having to emphasize your accomplishments and de-emphasize others. 
But the definition of, of what of what a star is 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 it people who stop on others on the way to the top? So essentially, uh, being sort of abusive and nasty, or at least not helpful, or is it people who get ahead by doing individual work and helping others succeed? The best thing is to get a chance to talk with former lab members. It's very important because the current lab members have huge reservations because they they have like all of the problems that may happen to the target may happen to them if they basically share their stories. So I would say the best way is to like get uh, get information from like former um, lab members. Also, they can look at the like this the like stay time of each member in the lab and also the outcomes to basically get the hint of like how the lab works, what is the turnover of the lab members. Many of these things can basically give uh, useful information about how the ethical part of the lab would be. The only caveat is I think some uh, graduate students, postdocs might be willing to think, even though I've heard bad things about this guy or gal, um, he or she is famous and I can put up with it for the year or two of my postdoc or it probably won't happen to me because I'm you know, different than the others. Uh, and when they're in somebody's lab like that, whether they've entered knowingly or not, uh, they often feel like they have to put up with it, not only because they're pr pretty sure that the institution won't do anything about it, but because that person is famous, that person's name will forever be associated with them. Um, and the institution is not going to do much sanctioning to a famous scientist or somebody that's generating a lot of grants or reputation. So we have talked a lot about what abusive supervision looks like and what students can do about it, although we can see that they don't have that many options. Now I think it's time we talk about the steps we should be taking as a scientific community to make large-scale change. The NIH, through the training grant and fellowship mechanisms, is requiring mentorship training for all trainers associated with training brands. So that's certainly a start. Um, most faculty that I've talked to feel that these training sessions are not productive and unnecessary and not a whole lot new is learned. And, and I'm always disappointed to hear that because it, it means that they're going into it with a very closed mind because those opportunities are, are very good for just self-examination, for discussing with peers about what they do, what you do, to get ideas of how mentorship should be done. So I think that training uh, is a good start and uh, provide some hope that as older generations die off, <laughs> that younger generations who have gone through RCR and have gone through mentorship training will have a different perspective. So there's hope for the future. 
I would say wherever money is involved, you need to look for toxic environment. And uh, so the thing is that what is missing is uh, functional collaboration between all stakeholders. So if the funding agencies are in contact with institutions and basically they track the bullying records of the PIs, then they may stop funding to the violating PIs. So that's make institutions the required motivation to basically jump in and consider these things. The other thing is that, yes, they have policies, but the policies doesn't have teeth. Like they know that, okay, you go to Ambada's office or you go to, I don't know, many other resources that university basically provide. You share your story. They do internal investigation. They basically end up with the conclusion that, okay, the PI basically made wrong thing, made bad behavior, and your allegations are kind of true. So then what? What they need to do? What they can offer targets besides you can change your lab or you can move institutions or in some cases stay and work under the umbrella of the same PI and we promise these things never happens. So they don't have a specific plan and a specific budget to address the incidence of academic bullying. So that's why I think there should be an external collaborative things or force that put them basically on the responsibility to basically address these things at the first place. Like for the, for the academic, I would say, plagiarism, there's no question that journals basically retract the paper. And that retraction would be a huge motivation for institutions to fairly and strongly consider the allegation of like plagiarism or data fabrication. But for the like academic bullying, the story is different. At least they don't believe that the long-term cost of bullying behaviors would be much higher than like data fabrication or the grants that they get. So I would say it's a multiple facet problem and it needs huge collaboration of all stakeholders to solve and tackle. So one of the things we know um, not only anecdotally, but from the research um, in my field, is that abusive supervision is a phenomenon that trickles down. So it's kind of like abuse in a family trickling down. You see it and you experience it and you didn't like it, but then you turn around and do it um, because that's what was done to you. Um, and I have a current study that's under review right now that suggests that this kind of negative leadership trickles down more than positive leadership, which is a, a terrible thing. Um, so we really have to figure out a way to stop it because uh, yeah, I know Morteza has experienced this phenomenon and he has doctoral students and he's trying hard, you know, writing about this and understanding the phenomenon from a psychological point of view because he understands this tendency um, to have things trickle down and he doesn't want to do it. But what that comes back to this idea of tough love is that um, abusive supervision can be what we call hot or cold. So it's hot if I'm just a person with little self-management ability and I just get mad once, you know, every now and then I yell at somebody or, you know, embarrass them or whatever. And 
that you could argue is somewhat beyond my control, um, even though it's clearly not appropriate. On the other hand, it can be cold and intentional and strategic, kind of like what you say, uh, like what, you know, I, this is tough love. I'm being tough on you and it's for your own good. And, um, sometimes, um, PIs or, uh, others are intentionally and strategically, um, nasty to their followers, um, with the intention of being punitive or being tough or being hard on them to make them, you know, to make them better, make them stronger. And that worries me more, I think, than somebody once in a while getting mad and, you know, behaving badly. And I wonder if there's also uh, related like mental health and psychological um, issues related to having experienced this type of bullying and abuse in the workplace and how that translates to both their mental health personally, but also in um, satisfaction of their work. Well, I can tell you for sure. I mean, we know from the stories about the horrible impact on on mental health, um, just from the anecdotes that we've heard, you know, with me after writing that article and with Morteza talking to a lot of people. But from the literature in organizational behavior, we know that it can affect your affect, and, uh, your cognition and your behavior. So in terms of affect, it would be things like low job satisfaction, emotional exhaustion, burnout, anxiety and depression. Um, behavior, it might result in workplace deviance, um, retaliation. It might cause work to family conflict. So you take this, you know, aggression home um, with you. It can reduce your performance um, and cause you to leave the organization. And then from a cognitive perspective, you experience this perception of injustice and, and it's happening to you. And when you experience injustice or unfairness, you want to restore it. And so you may do it, uh, restore that equity or that sense of fairness by doing some of these um, horrible behaviors um, like deviance. And the deviance may likely not go back to the abuser because you're af afraid of a retaliation cycle. You know, I'm going to get back at him, my PI, and then he's going to get back at me. So often that deviance could be misplaced and go toward your coworker or toward your significant other or toward the, you know, I would also Uber add that if you go to the be. medical context, it would also affect like patients by doing medical errors and it's, it's scientifically valid and basically approved. Thanks to the insights from our guests, we've been able to shed some light on the pervasiveness of bullying in academia and the detrimental costs it will have if it continues to go unchecked. We hope that this episode helps any trainee that have been targets of bullying to know that they're not alone. At an institutional level, those in power need to start listening to trainees, give them more options that will support their careers, and of course, hold PIs and institutions accountable for the behavior taking place in the lab. Academia should be a space for trainees to learn and grow as the future leaders of science and medicine. And this can only happen if they feel supported by their mentors. 
It's clear that bullying in academia is an issue that simply can't be ignored any longer. The conversation is just getting started and we hope that anyone listening, especially those who have any influence to make change, can take action to make academia a safer environment for trainees to thrive. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granada, edited by Sophia Nastri and Tavian Pollard, and mixed by Jared Warsoff. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. <laughs>